Welcome to Future Forecast, the podcast where we discuss technology, leadership, and sustainability with some of the most influential leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world. We explore their insights into some of the most exciting trends and topics of our time and learn from their personal experiences. I'm your host, Isabel Ringness, and today we'll be talking about finding your why, creating a safe workplace, and why millennials are so hard to manage. We are talking to one of the world's most famous speakers on these topics, and if you didn't already guess it, his name is Simon Sinek, and he's the author of multiple best-selling books, including the global bestseller, Start With Why, How Great Leaders Inspire Everyone to Take Action. Simon found his own why in 2006 and has since been invited to meet with an array of leaders and organizations, including the United Nations, the United States Congress, United States Air Force, Marine Corps, Navy, Army, and Coast Guard. Needless to say, we are thrilled that you wanted to join the Future Forecast as well. Thanks for having me. So let's dive right in. In 2009, you popularized the concept of why on the TED stage. It rose to become the third most watched TED Talk of all time with over 44 million views, subtitled in 48 languages. And you start your talk by asking, how do you explain when things don't go as we assume? Or better, how do you explain when others are able to achieve things that seem to defy all of the assumptions? For example, why is Apple so innovative? And then you go on to explain that three and a half years later, you made a discovery that changed your view on how you thought the world worked and the way we operate in it. Because you saw a pattern. You found a few common denominators amongst all the truly inspiring and great leaders of our time. You found that they all thought, acted, and communicated in the same way, but opposite of everyone else. You codified it and discovered that it was more simple than expected, and you call it the golden circle. What is the golden circle? (laughs) So every single one of us knows what we do. These are the jobs we have, the things we do. Some of us know how we do these things. Um, these are the things that we think make us stand out or make us different or better than than our competition, than other people. Uh, but very, very few people and very, very few uh, organizations can clearly articulate why they do what they do. And I don't mean to make money. That's a result. I mean, what's your purpose? What's your cause? What's your belief? Why does your organization exist? Why did you get out of bed this morning? And why should anyone care? And it's that combination, uh, uh, those three things, that I call the golden circle. And we have to know all of them. And the problem is, everybody knows what, some people know how, but very, very few know why. And what I learned, as you just said, is that all those great and inspiring leaders, um, from Gandhi to Nelson Mandela, uh, every single one of them thinks, acts, and communicates the exact same way. And it's the complete opposite to the rest of us. They all start with why. And, and you use Apple as an example. Do you mind going through that example? Sure. So uh, I use Apple just because it's a common example around the world and we all easily understand it. If Apple were like everyone else, they would start by telling us what they do. We make great computers. How do they do it? They're beautifully designed, simple to use, and user-friendly. Want to buy one? It's not that appealing. And that is exactly how most organizations communicate to us. They tell us, here's our new car. It's got leather seats, great mileage, uh, you know, fancy radio. Do you want to buy it? You know, here's our law firm. Our lawyers went to all the best schools. We have all the biggest clients. Do you want to do business with us? But the way Apple actually, actually communicates, they start with why. Everything we do, they say, we believe in challenging the status quo. And the way we challenge the status quo is by making our products beautifully designed, simple to use, and user-friendly. We just happen to make great computers. Want to buy one? It's a (laughs) profoundly, profoundly different message, simply because we started with why. So, and as you mentioned, you believe that the goal should be not to sell people uh, what 
you you think they need. Uh, the goal is to sell people who believe what you believe. Uh, and the same thing goes for hiring. Look for people who believe what you believe because they will be look beyond the money and then they will work for you with their blood and their sweat and their tears. But for the average business leader, uh, how are we able to like tap into that truly inspirational way of conveying a message of what you believe? How do we become the leader who people want to buy from and who want to work for with their entire soul? Well, first and foremost, the leaders have to believe in their own cause. Uh, very often, companies talk about being purpose-driven, having a purpose, having a vision, having a mission, whatever it is. But when we look at the decisions that they make, it doesn't seem that they actually believe in anything at all. You know, we hire people whether we don't even think about whether they fit our culture. We hire them because they can do a job. When we are having tough times, we sometimes look at the people and think, well, we can get rid of some of them and we can save some money. Um, and yet, all over their website, it says, we care about people, we care about people. So I, I think, you know, first and foremost, for any leader to command a following, and remember, there's a big difference between being in charge and being a leader. I know many, many people who sit at the highest levels of organizations who are not leaders. We do as they tell us because they have authority over us, but we would not follow them. And yet I know many people who have no authority, they have no rank, and yet they've made a choice, the choice to look after the person to the left of them, the choice to look after the person to the right of them, and we would trust them and follow them anywhere. In other words, leadership is the willingness to see that those around us will rise. Uh, leadership is the responsibility to ensure that those around us can work to their natural best. And that starts with actually wanting to be a leader and believing in leadership. And people will follow us and help us build our visions if we actually believe in our visions, as opposed to just trying to make ourselves rich or famous or whatever finite, selfish goal we're trying to achieve. Um, that seems simple, but it's hard work. You know, it's, it's about belief and conviction. And it does seem like hard work because... I guess when you look at them in hindsight, for example, Apple, you think, oh, well, you know, it's obvious that, you know, they believe what they believe and it's so true and everyone believes it. But then if you were to think about a company that doesn't have it, I mean, a business leader selling, for example, shower curtains, how, how would that business leader go on to kind of convey a message of belief and getting a lot of people on board? But in the end, the person is selling shower curtains. I mean, how, how would you help that leader? It has nothing to do with the shower curtains. It has to do with their belief in people. So, for example, there's a company that I've worked with named Barry Waymiller. They make machinery, big machines. Uh, there's nothing fancy or glamorous about them. And yet the leader, Bob Chapman, uh, if you ask him why his business exists, he says, we measure success by how we touch the lives of people. I want to build people to do extraordinary things, he talks about. And when you visit their factories, the people there feel cared for. They feel like they have responsibility. They feel that they have freedom to make decisions. They have agency over their own jobs. They feel like the company cares about them. They feel like the company would sooner sacrifice the numbers to save them and never sacrifice them to save the numbers. So what's the result? The result is that the quality of the product is higher. The result is that they take care of the machines so they last longer. The result is that they talk to customers in an entirely different way. The result is that they have great relationships with the people who buy from them. It has nothing to do with the product. So to use your example of shower curtains, if there was great leadership at the shower curtain company, the people who buy those shower curtains would, like the shops that buy the shower curtains, love working with the company. 
And they're happy to promote them and put them in the front of the shop. And we who buy them will find that the quality on average is much higher than everyone else because the people who are making the shower curtains really, really want to make great shower curtains. (laughs) So it's to everyone's benefit that the leaders care about the people. Hmm. And in 2006, you you found your own uh, why, and that led you to become one of the most inspirational and powerful speakers, as all of our listeners are currently witnessing. Of our time, how did you find your own why? Uh, what was it? Uh, I, I remember it, um, but I want you to say it in your own words. And how are you able to transform yourself into that person where leaders around the world are inspired? So I went through a dark period where I knew what I did and I knew how I did it, but I didn't know why. And um, I knew I needed to find out. I also knew that I didn't have any objectivity. So I asked for help. I don't think that anybody can do it by themselves. Some people try, and maybe they can, but I think it's too hard. Um, And so I asked for help from somebody. Um, And he and I went through a sort of a process that we developed together uh, to help me find my why. And from there, I, I changed it. I helped people find their own. I found a way to actually scale it and help people find their own why. But but I couldn't have done it without him. Uh, you know, um, I think because you need someone who's be able to look at you and ask you questions and be objective and and just point things out to you and show you patterns and observations that you couldn't do by yourself. And your brother or sister or husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend, that ra- those relationships are too close because they know v- a lot about you and they can't help but add in the answers. So, uh, yeah, it, it, uh, it grew from there. I mean, once I knew my why, which is to inspire people to do the things that inspire them, so together each of us can change our world for the better, uh, it became an obsession. Um, I, I found a way to help other people find their why, which um, was much more efficient than this process that, the process that I went through. It took months. Well, you can do it in a day. It actually, believe it or not, does not take long. It can sometimes take longer, but when you have help, it doesn't have to take long. And that means it's scalable. And my goal is that everybody on the planet should be able to learn their why. You know, it should be inexpensive. It should be available to, the, to as many people as possible. And what we've attempted to do what is, is make it available to as many people as possible. Yes, we still can go inside and help organizations and sometimes individuals. But I understand that that's not a scalable model. And that's why I wrote a book called Find Your Why. And that's why we have a course online called uh, To Help People Find Their Why, the Why Discovery Course. And we've purposely priced these things low because we want as many people to have them. I even offer things for free, little little um, oh, um, <clears throat> sort of exercises you can take yourself through that will at least get you in the, in the region of knowing your why. So, yeah, I want everybody to know their why. Can you tell us quickly what some of those exercises yeah, are? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, I call it the friends test. Um, go up to a friend who loves you and you love them. Again, not a sibling, not a spouse, not somebody, you know, not, not a boyfriend or girlfriend, but one of your friends, one of your best friends. And that you know that if you were to call them at three o'clock in the morning, they would be there for you and you would be them for them. You'd be there for them no matter what. And ask them this question. Why are we friends? And they're going to look at you like you're crazy because the part of the brain that controls our feelings doesn't control language. In other words, they can't put it into words. And so they'll say things like, uh, I don't know. Why are you asking me this? Because you know, I heard a crazy guy on a podcast. Just play along with me. And then amazingly, you actually stop asking the question why, because the question why is an emotional question and it elicits emotional answers. We've all had the experience where somebody says to us, why did you do it that way? And it's, it's actually, it makes you defensive. So you actually start ask, asking the question what? Come on, what is it about me? 
that I know that you would be there for me, be there for me no matter what. And again, they're going to struggle. You can't help them. You can't let anybody else help them. You have to let them go through the process. And they're going to be describing you. Ah, I don't know. You're trustworthy. You're funny. And you're like, you have to play devil's advocate. Great. That's the definition of a friend. That's all friends. What is it about me specifically that I know that you would be there for me no matter what? And again, they'll struggle. They'll keep describing you. And eventually they'll give up. Eventually, they'll say, I don't know. And this is what my friend said to me. My friend said, I don't know, Simon. All I know is I can just sit in a room with you. I don't even have to talk to you and I can feel inspired. And I got goosebumps. I'm getting them right now. In other words, they will say something that is so core to who you are that you will have an emotional response. You'll either get goosebumps or you may well up with tears. And that's when you know that what they have articulated is your why. What they have said to you is the value you have in their life but it's also the value you have in everybody's life. It's the thing that you are on this planet to do. You are here to give us that. That's why we call it a gift. You have a gift. Gifts are for giving. You're supposed to be giving it away, not keeping it. Mm. Um, and that's what your why is. It's, it's the value you have in, in your friends' lives and in the lives of everyone, and it's what you bring to all your work. And that's why to be able to learn your why means you can do it actively. We've all had the experience where we're in the flow. We've all had the experience where everything's turning up spades and everything's amazing and fantastic. And then we've had the same experience where things aren't working, but we're doing the same thing that we used to do. I don't know why it's not working. When you know your why, you can, you can see the patterns. You can filter out the things that you know will put you in a position of weakness, and you can purposely choose to do the things that put you in a position of strength. And so you asked me the question, so what happened after that? Well, once I knew my why, I knew what to say yes to, and I knew what to say no to. I'll give you a perfect example. In the very early days of me helping people find their why, there was no TED Talk, there was no book, there was no nothing. It was just me. And I, I was helping companies find their why in the early days, small companies, all very small companies. And um, somebody had heard about me and he called me and he said these words to me. He literally said to me, convince me why I should hire you, right? I had no money. I had no nothing. I told him, don't. Because I realized he wasn't inspired by my work. He didn't want to help me inspire other people. He was looking for something I don't know what, but his first question, I could see through my filter. If I'm supposed to inspire people to do the things that inspire them and help everybody change their world for the better, the, asking me the question, convince me why I should hire you, he is not for me and I am not for him. The kinds of people I worked with, with the kinds of people who called me and said, I've heard your work and you're really onto something. I, I love what you're doing. They use emotional words. And, and it may not be perfect, but I... I want to work with you. How do we do that? Those are the kinds of people I wanted to work with. I'm running them through this filter constantly. So one of the things the why does is it helps us make better decisions about our lives. Because without the why, what do we do? We make a list of the pros and the cons. And we, we maybe take the, the job that offers us more money. But are we actually evaluating who we're going to be working for? or the environment in which we're going to be working? Do we know that we're going to thrive in that environment? Are we going to thrive with that leader? Or are we just taking the job for money? And when we take the job for money, hopefully it works out. But if it doesn't, it's actually our fault. And you're more likely to make more money anyway over the long term if you're in a place where you're going to do better and you're going to thrive. And the people who you work with love you and you love them. You'll eventually make up any shortfall. It doesn't matter. You have to have a longer perspective. So... Learning my why gave me the confidence to turn down superficially good things and take what I thought were the right, the right things and the right choices to make. And it's, in, it's imperfect, but on balance, it's, it's been a lot better. 
we have to shift gears a bit because we don't have that much time. Um, but uh, I think everyone will be <laughs> walking around asking their friends why they're their friends uh, in short time. Uh, and I'm curious to see if that will uh, inspire a better Norwegian workforce. Um, but in 2016, you gave an interview on millennials in the workplace that literally broke the internet. And it got over 80 million views in a week. And it's now up to more than 200 million views. And you talk about how millennials, the generation born from 1984 and after, are tough to manage. They're accused of being entitled and narcissistic, self-interested, unfocused, lazy. And you go on to saying that even though leaders ask this generation what it, may, what it is that they want, and I quote, we want to work in a place with purpose, we want to make an impact, we want free food and beanbag chairs. They're still not happy when they get it. And uh, that is because there are four missing pieces. You mentioned parenting, technology, impatience, and environment. And uh, I think there are a lot of millennials listening to this podcast. Can you give us a brief description of what these things are that we're missing uh, and uh, how to change it? So, sure. Uh, also know where the, this came from, um, which is every meeting I had and every talk that I gave, 100%, without exception, every industry, everywhere, somebody would raise their hand and ask the millennial question, <laughs> that they were struggling with their millennial employees. And... And so they thought that millennials were unleadable, which of course is nonsense, right? And so what I attempted to do was exercise a little empathy. Instead of accusing millennials of being entitled or lazy or self-interested, let's actually take a look at the environment in which they grew up because we're all products of our own environments. You know, I've been accused that I can't make generalizations about millennials. Of course I can. You know, our grandparents who grew up during the Second World War are often, often frugal or miserly because they may have grown up during rations. Well, there's nothing wrong with them. They're not broken. It's because they grew up during the war. <laughs> and so it affects their global outlook and affects who they are as an entire generation. So guess what? But we can make generalizations about entire, general, uh, entire generations if they shared sort of some of the same experiences growing up. Millennials were the first generation to come of age, in other words, meet, reach their teenage years in a, in a time where social media and cell phones were ubiquitous. They, that, that, that's how they grew up. And it has an impact, right? And there are some other observations that they experience that are um, more common in their generation than in previous generations. You raise parenting. For many, um, they grew up in very overprotective households. Um, uh, over too much hand sanitizer, you know. Uh, you know, if, if you don't do well in school, it's the parents are complaining to the teachers as opposed to telling you you have to work harder, and uh, and telling us we can do whatever we want, no matter what it is. Right? Just because we want to be something, which is a wonderful message to tell a child, but it left out the hard work part. And so what ended up happening was too many people from one generation graduated school and went to get their first job, and it turned out they're not that special, and their parents can't get them a promotion, and when they, don't, when they have a bad day at work, their parents can't swoop in and fix everything, and uh, it shook a lot of people's self-confidence. And what ends up happening when your self-confidence gets shaken is you start to blame yourself. You start to think, oh, my God, it's me. And, and that can't be good. Um, so parents and sort of the parenting strategies of, 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 of millennials really should be questioned. And by the way, the data that I'm talking about didn't come from scientists. It came from parents. A lot of the data is parents themselves looking back at how they raised their children and went, uh, yeah, I probably shouldn't have done that. Right? <laughs> so that has an impact on how someone views themselves and how someone views their space in the world. 
technology is another big one. Um, cell phones are great. They're wonderful. Social media is great and wonderful. But the problem is balance. Um, alcohol is fine. Drinking too much is bad. Gambling is fun. Gambling too much is dangerous. Right? It's a question of balance. And one of the problems with social media and cell phones is is when we get a bing or a buzz or a flash or a beep, when we get a notification, it releases a chemical in our body called dopamine. It's why it feels good. We like getting likes. We like when people text us. We've all had the experience where you're feeling a little depressed, you're feeling a little sad. So what do we do? We pull out our phones and we text 10 friends. Hi, 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 hi. Because we want someone to text us back because it feels good. Mm. We want that little hit of dopamine. The problem is, is dopamine, if left unbalanced, is highly, highly, highly addictive. Dopamine is the exact same chemical in alcohol that makes us enjoy alcohol. Dopamine is the exact same chemical that's released when we gamble, which is why we enjoy gambling. And so cell phone addiction and social media addiction looks most like a gambling addiction, where we cannot be anywhere without our phones, that we have to have it on the table at all times. We sleep next to it. We check it before we say good morning to the person sleeping next to us. We have anxiety if we don't have our phones. We wonder what's going on. If we get no notifications, we actually start to feel bad. We suffer withdrawal. And people addicted to their cell phones and social media say the exact same thing as alcoholics. I can stop whenever I want. (laughs) Except they can't. And the problem is, like all addictions, when we have an over-reliance on an external device or substance, it hurts real relationships. It hurts our ability to form love and trust with real people. It hurts our self-confidence. It makes it harder for us to concentrate and focus. And all of these things we see are true. What's worse is that we have age restrictions on alcohol. We have age restrictions on gambling. We have age restrictions on all of these addictive devices and, 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 and uh, uh, substances. But we have no age restrictions on access to social media and cell phones. And the science on this is very, very clear, which is if you use alcohol as a comparison... Um, uh, young people who drink to discover alcohol before the age of 15, um, 40% of them are likely to become adults. And if they wait to something like 19, that number plummets to 7%. In other words, the young mind needs double the amount of dopamine to make us feel good. And we're giving open access to cell phones and social media to children who are under 15 years old, whose brains are not yet mature enough to cope with that crazy flow of dopamine chemical going through their body, which means a very, very high percentage are going to develop addiction. And what that looks like in this modern day is it looks like an inability to cope with stress, and it looks like lack of self-confidence, and it looks like an inability to form deep, meaningful relationships. In other words, when they do enter the workforce and they do get a job, they don't know how to, they, they struggle to form deep, meaningful relationships with their colleagues and their coworkers. They may even struggle to form deep, meaningful relationships with boyfriends and girlfriends. Um, I've talked to many millennials who freely admit to me that too many of their friendships are superficial. They love their friends, they have fun with their friends, but they don't rely on their friends. And they wouldn't call their friends when they were really, really depressed or in a dark place, which means we see loneliness going up, and we see anxiety going up, and we see depression going up. The worst case scenario is we see rates of suicide going up which we do, especially amongst young people. The highest rate of increased suicide in the United States is girls 10 to 14 years old. The number of young girls who've killed themselves in the past 15 years has tripled, which is scary, right? Girls 10 to 14 years old is because we give them access, open access. 
girls also tend to use social media more than boys. It's what the statistics show. Um, it's not a causation, of course, but there's a correlation. And I think we need to take responsibility as a society that we should not be giving open access uh, to children um, for these devices, S significantly, significantly limiting them. A 12-year-old should not have their own phone at all. Um, and for adults, uh, I think we need to take more responsibility and recognize the fact that we, we should treat it like addiction. We should treat it like any addiction. Um, and sometimes we have to wean ourselves off these things for the good of our friends because we want our friends to feel loved. We should do it for them, not just for us. I think Sherry Turkle said that uh, the most valuable thing you can give to anyone today is uh, your undivided attention. So that means that we have to get Tristan Harris on this podcast to talk about how to counteract our uh, social media and technology addiction. Unfortunately, we don't have any more time with you. Everyone's knocking on the door to get a hold of you. But thank you so much for joining the Future Forecast. This was awesome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Future Forecast. Please remember to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. And if you really like it, we would really appreciate if you shared one of the episodes on social media or with one of your friends. Thank you so much. Talk to you next week.